Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I've I've seen the way that this movie could play out if we're lucky. Like we when we when you say okay, what's the what's the math here? How much money do we need to spend that we're not currently spending to do? Yes, let's the, hear the math. The let's local do it. news we need. Um, it's it's between one and three billion dollars a year. Um, and that's very very low, Elizabeth. I don't believe exactly. your estimate. It's too low. No, you should believe my estimate. <laughs> um, Oh my gosh, you should believe my estimate. It's 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 low enough to that we can do it, first of all, but it's it's grounded in um good thinking. Like we we don't need to recreate restaurant coverage locally. We don't need to recreate classified ads. We don't need to recreate the weather report. But there's a core civic function that for decades um there's been like a tiny little group of very well-meaning and public policy analysts are saying, okay, what are the critical information needs that do exist and how can we size them? It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, best-selling author, co-founder of Chalkbeat and the American Journalism Project, Elizabeth Green. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here, too. You are the biggest champion for something that I have been screaming out for for uh, months now on the trail when I was running for president. Uh, which is that local journalism is dying. It's withering away. And that is a major, major problem. Uh, and you've been one of the biggest leaders in trying to address that problem, for which I'm very grateful. But I would love to hear a little bit more about you and how you came to this work, uh, how you came to realize that this was something that you wanted to uh, help address. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thank thank you for for being an advocate for this issue. First of all, it's um, it's an important one. Um, so I, my story starts in in high school. I thought I would be a poet or a novelist, which is hilarious in retrospect. That would have been a, a bad outcome for all involved. Um, and so the the thing that you do if if you want to be a poet and you're you have to go to high school is you sign up for the newspaper, which I did, um, and that changed my life. I 
first of all, was introduced to um, the issue that I care most about still today, second to local news, which is public education and equities. Um, I wrote about the um, differences between the opportunities I had and what my uh, fellow students had when I... And and where was this, Elizabeth, uh, geographically or what high school? Um, Blair, Montgomery Blair High School outside of DC in Silver Spring, Maryland. So one of the most actually, um, integrated, racially integrated communities in the country, uh, but super internally segregated high school. And, um, I, I was living in my bubble until this opportunity of a newspaper pushed me to talk to other people in my community. And I saw the impact that a newspaper could have on this issue that I had become really galvanized about the unfairness and, in our education. So you became a high school journalism nerd. Did you end up like editor in chief of this paper? Yeah, this, Obviously, this yes. Obvi- <laughs> <laughs> Are you crazy? Of course I did. Yes. Okay, so now we have this picture of uh, high school uh, editor in chief Elizabeth. Uh, and then you went to Harvard, studied social studies. And I, I have a lot of friends who studied social studies. Um, so you so know that it did- wasn't just maps. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, it, it is rough on you all having those, <laughs> it's, the, it's the so number. hard to be a Harvard graduate. It's just really so difficult. That should be your third cause. Um, so so after you were you also highly involved with uh, the Crimson and the newspapers there? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I but but I like really what spoke to me always was the image that I had at Montgomery Blair High School of like, we, we wrote stories that the school board listened to. We wrote stories that the superintendent made changes because of. We wrote stories that our teacher caused our teachers to like hear kids for the first time about how they're, they were feeling, they were feeling like neglected or un, uncared for, or like their, their classes were babysitting. And, um, and, and like every kid at Montgomery, it didn't matter who you are, every kid at Montgomery Brother High School, when you walked into the cafeteria, on newspaper day was reading that paper. We had a common text and it connected us and it allowed- You definitely like, would read that paper in change. high school because I feel like you'd be like, am I in it? Is there a picture <laughs> of me? The people I know, like what's going on? That's <laughs> you know, the thing and, about and, local news. You wanna, you're, you're not, uh, you come for what, am I in it? And you stay for, wow, that, my, that kid I never met before has a really compelling and important perspective that I didn't know. So that work continued through college. So, so it must have been very hard to become editor in chief of the Crimson. Did you like? Did, did that happen, or did I you did have to not fight become editor? No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 that that never. That's a really crazy job. I, the magazine. There's a weekend magazine where we could write our our long form investigative social interest pieces. So people would come. In that case, people would come for the party pictures. We had a whole page where we just took pictures of people making out at parties. Um, and that was the first assignment on, on the magazine was you had to ha- have the balls to take those pictures and then, and they would hopefully stay for, you know, the, the takedowns of the admissions department and how there was rampant like class inequity and our admissions policies could change. That's the story that I wrote, um, that I was most proud of, but yeah. I'm <laughs> not, well, nice work. Thank um, you. so did you. So did you go straight to work at um, like a newspaper or other publisher after you left college or was there something else? It seemed like there might have been something else. No. So like I had the whole plan laid out, like I had interviewed the alumni and who came to talk to us at the Crimson and even my even my like college interviewer worked, had my dream job. She was like, at you know, in 
in a good part of her career, she was finally working at the Washington Post covering social justice issues. But she started, you know, the path I, I knew I wanted to go to the Aniston Star in Alabama has a, an, a really interesting track record in the civil rights movement, played an important role, a local newspaper, super f- community focus. One day I wanted to go to the Newark Star Ledger in New Jersey. Again, like, Great reporting about a really important part of our country. Um, event, I would go to the Chicago Tribune, um, and then eventually I could maybe like rest on my laurels and settle into the you know the twilight of my career, a national newspaper, and write like magazine stories and maybe a book. That's the plan. That's the dream. Yeah. So how did that unfold in real life? So like the trail of local newspapers, um, basically, I learned pretty quickly was being lit on fire right before my eyes. So um, in real life, my first job was at U.S. News and World Report magazine. And um, we had already gone there. They had already gone through so many rounds of layoffs that as an intern, I had an office with a door. (laughs) Like, that's a really bad situation to be in. Like, your real estate planning and your layoff rounds are so out of sync that every intern has their own office. Give that intern her corner office. (laughs) (laughs) Corner offices for everyone. Yeah, I mean, um, what the fuck? So that was was an, an education and... I had some, one of the experiences I had there that really kind of like lit me up was uh, I thought I had my big break. I was going to write about this community in in Alabama um, and the way that they were doing education reform in Mobile, Alabama, like where the business community was coming together with civil rights leaders. And I thought it kind of showed the the benefits of that, of that. union and, and ally, ally relationship and also the challenges. Um, and they were like, we're putting it on the cover. And I was like, yes, this is awesome. Like the people of, of, of Mobile like deserve that. They deserve that. And I obviously deserve that. So, but then um, my, my f- friend actually, her story ended up getting bumped Bumping mine from the cover. You mean your former friend? Yeah, my, you mean your my. betrayer? <laughs> <laughs> Someone who called herself my friend. But the real enemy of this story is the healthcare industry because, or really, it's like the economics of of the, of information. Because the reason, so she had written, I think, like a three hundred word story, really short, about a study that she thought was suspect about, like, I, it, I think it was that Botox has other benefits other than just curing wrinkles. Like it can also make you happy or something like that. And um, it, that tiny story that she's like, I don't know, this is on slim evidence, gets expanded to a cover story because the advertising team has goals to make in order to pay for our damn corner offices. <laughs> and like they they needed um, a, a, front, a cover story on health insurance, on some kind of health issue in order to leverage a back page ad, the most lucrative spot, from a, a healthcare company. So it's like, this is a little bit broken. Um, you mean there wasn't an advertiser in the education space that wanted the people on Mobile on the cover? This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights 
and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So, so you joined U.S. News and World Report, and that publication was shrinking too. I think during that time, it was the mid two thousands. Yeah. Uh, the the thing I'm I'm scratching my chin about is I feel like there are thousands of uh, frustrated journalists like you um, over this last period of time, uh, but somehow you wound up being like the champion of American journalism, local journalism in particular, to the 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 point that you've raised at this point or helped raise tens of millions of dollars for nonprofit journalism. And I feel like that is actually the dream that thousands of journalists <laughs> like, like have had while they've been in these strange situations Hell with the US no. News and Report. So, no. so I, like, so That's this is the, the problem that, is not enough people are crazy like me. I don't know. Well, so I want to hear about the craziness. I can't, I, I, I can see kernels of the craziness i mean positive craziness because you're my Thank kind you. of crazy and that you just went up and were like <laughs> you know what this industry is getting lit on fire maybe i should start a, a new version of it that right. doesn't rely upon the healthcare advertiser i mean it was that and it was also that like at a national publication as as local as blowing up i was being sent in, parachuted in to communities to write the story of, in my case, their schools. And I just saw that that was so broken because like when we tell ourselves stories about our country as a national community, we do that through, um, we do that when journalists parachute in. And if you parachute in and you have no local reporting to read, you, the only people you oh, have to... Oh my to, gosh, you'd show up and be like, hey, I have no record. I have no idea what's going on here. You, you just listen to the loudest voices in the room is what you do. And they tell you lies. And then you write them in like a beautiful narrative. And you're like, done. I solved the Boston Public Schools. Like, you're welcome. Um, you know, my work here is done. And everyone in Boston is like, you idiot. Like, we don't trust you at all. We don't trust the media because clearly they don't know what they're talking about. And then, but everyone else, all the other school boards around the country, country are like, why aren't we on this thing that Boston did? Like, we got to do that. And then so they all race off to do that. And it's like, I, I was like adding to the problem, not helping the problem by doing parachuting. So then I go to a local newspaper um, because I, I'm like, this is wrong. Also, that was not my plan to be national, right? My plan was to do the local thing. And the newspaper is a great experience. It's in New York. Um, but then it it uh, folds during the financial crisis, along with other newspapers around the country. And so I'm not like so brave or courageous or smart or anything. I just literally lost my job and needed to figure out what to do. So your uh, New York newspaper goes under its financial crisis. Uh, let's call it 2008, 2009. Um, so, 08, so then yeah. how did you... Uh, 
gather the resources to try a different model of journalism? The first thing I did was I looked for a job. And but but the thing is, like in that time, I mean, as you know, this is your story also. Um, the the people around me were doing startups and disrupting things. And so I was like, I was aware that the internet existed and that like it was changing my business and I should probably think about that. And I had friends who were pushing me um, probably that a little bit more to be a little bit more radical and like what I thought of a job search as. And so instead of doing like a totally classic job search, I started to think, well, what would it look like? if I could do the thing that will actually survive and if I could start to create a business model that'll be like long-term durable um, so that A, I can do the job that I came here to do and B, anyone else could ever do that and probably that's better for the country if we could have that happen. And so, um, you know, like I, I set out like my plan, what I wanted to do. I thought one of the key things I think about um what I realized and what is still true is like that we don't have to create exactly the thing that used to exist. Like a lot of, a lot of my peers who have lost their, their jobs and in, in local news and said, well, I need to create my own job. They're like, let's take a local newspaper, put it on the internet, slap a 501c3 label on it and like call it a day. We'll have like all the same beats. We'll have local sports coverage and we'll have movie reviews. Th- those numbers will not work out, but it go doesn't on. work. <laughs> it doesn't work. And I, just like but people are still doing this but it doesn't make any sense because the way i mean look think about the local newspaper like the local newspaper was the the bundle of all bundles and we talk about the internet has been the unbundler well it was like a classic bundle it was like why did you open your local newspaper when you were growing up as a kid i got the local paper because it showed up at my door um i read the comics first the comics first thing i did Yeah. yeah I, I knew that about you. And then what did you read, if anything else? Uh, sports. Sports. Yeah. And for me, I read. Uh, I I I would I would go like when you had to go to the movies. You would you would open the movies page and be like, Oh, the movie clock. Love that movie clock. I I read Ann Landers columns too. Um, they were next to the comics, and I th- I always thought I'd like learn something about adults, uh, which I think I did actually. Those are just, <laughs> that served those you are well. Some thinkers. <laughs> I think that served you really well. She should get a bonus. Um, yeah, so like that. Yeah, it's a classic bundle. You come for you come for the comics or the classified ads. Like if you have to look for a job, you still open a newspaper. If you had to look for an apartment, if you wanted to know what to wear that day, like before you go to work or school, you open the weather page. Like there wasn't, you know, maybe you turn on the radio for like two of those things, but it's much more efficient at that time to just open the newspaper. And like, if you're lucky or like, you know, then you maybe maybe read a few national politics articles that you, you can't help but see the cover too i mean if the cover is like a major national story then you're like oh like you know like yeah uh, i'll read that but you're probably not going to read about the city council race or like what happened in the school board yesterday unless you're really motivated to do that and so the the most like this like bundle um what's happened to it is the the things that we all mostly relied on as basically commercial goods commercial kinds of information have been splintered off into um standalone businesses 
Well, they're they're on uh, the internet on Craigslist or whatnot. Uh, yeah. You know, you strip away eighty percent of the revenue for a lot of these newspapers, and then you're left with all of the expenses <laughs> at fifteen to twenty percent of the revenue. Right. That's a tough thing to make work. But what make what made sense to me then, and what really makes sense to me now, is like similar. Okay, weather.com or Craigslist, they're all like a single product across many places. They're not a bundle of many different products like organized by place because you I mean that's that used to be a competitive for advertisers because if you wanted to sell a a watch or a car in Detroit you should put your ad in the Detroit Free Press like that was a good buy it's just not a smart buy anymore um there's so many other ways to do that and attention is so much more distributed and so um you what we do what we started to do or what I started to do even then is say like, let's just take the one issue. Yes, it's not like the thing that everyone was first opening their newspaper for, some people, but not everyone. But let's take that one issue and and use the best of the commercial model, but acknowledge that this is kind of the broccoli <laughs> that you're that was subsidized by candy. And we're we have to make a broccoli kind of business model for it, which is a non And that's why you called it broccoli wheat. <laughs> And now that's why I'm totally happy if no one reads our stories. No. <laughs> Proudly minimizing readership since <laughs> 2008. No, people love to read about schools and you can make them super interesting. And of course, I open my newspaper and I'm excited to read those stories. But I also like acknowledge that it's not a commercial business. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So most people don't know what Chalkbeat is. So go ahead and um, um, tell us about its origin and uh, what it has become. Thank you. Um, yeah, so so uh, the organization I created to flip the business model is one topic, public education, covered in multiple cities across the country. So we have eight states and city, city regions that we're covering um, from Colorado to Philadelphia, our newest one, um, Indianapolis, Newark, New Jersey, Detroit, New York City. Um, and and we now have, um, you know, this this deep reporting in all of these places where day in and day out, we're covering what matters to kids, families and public education. Um, we re 
print our stories in the legacy papers. We also broadcast them through ethnic media. Just, um, you know, we're, we're constantly on, on the front page of the local newspapers. Um, we, we do events. We also do distribution through new and creative ways that never existed before, but is part of like a new exciting movement of, of journalists taking the reins and saying, let's change this industry. Like we have a, a parent, a, mo- a mother's basically parents group, but a lot of grandmothers, moms in Memphis, Tennessee, and they meet regularly for um, Chalkbeat Book Club. So they read our stories and they talk about them. Um, so all Chalk kinds of Chalkbeat. Yeah, wow. so it's called Chalkbeat. Yeah, Chalkbeat. Uh, so how the heck do you choose these eight markets or regions out of the literally hundreds or thousands that wish they had Chalkbeat right now? They were like, what? I could have someone writing about my local public school. Like, why is this not happening here in Atlanta or whatever? Um, and, That's and- exactly right. Atlanta Atlanta is begging us to come. Um, I mean, we started off like in a very bootstraps way. So we are... Um, we now have a team of 70 people and a $12 million budget to make all this happen through f- mostly philanthropy. Um, but wow. it was, it was Who's hard. Who's the first big donor? Where? I want to know because <laughs> I've, I've started a nonprofit that, uh, you know, those first donors, you always are grateful to. So let's give them some love right now. Oh like, my who gosh. are the first people that were like chalkbeat? Yes. You're the best um, for asking that question. Uh, so the first person was Mark Gorton. He... Um, is a he's the founder of of LimeWire, um, and he has financial firms in New York City, and he's obsessed with uh, bike bike lanes, street livable streets issues, um, and so he had done all of his philanthropy when I met him was focused on hiring like he's a tech guy, so he hired a lot of tech guys to do good works in the transportation public policy around transportation, and then he sort of like accidentally hired a journalist. And that uh, they started something called Streets Blog. And he was like, man, that journalist was inexpensive and high impact. Um, And the Streets Blog model is really similar to Chalkbeat. It's multiple cities covering transit issues um, and and it's nonprofit. And so Mark was um, already had already decided he wanted to, to support and launch a streets blog equivalent for public education right when the New York Sun was folding. So he, we partnered up and that was the first donor to what's now Chalkbeat. Yes, that makes sense. So you have a city like Atlanta begging you to come and you're looking up being like, well, it's going to cost us X amount to cover Atlanta in any real way. Uh, so then does Atlanta find some resources? Yeah. So, so the kind of we go to a city uh, and we gather three years of runway up front um, for getting this up and running. We're likely to go to a place where there's strong philanthropic interest that's diversified. There's a talented local journalist with a vision for how to serve their community and what they want to do. Um, and there's a need. And unfortunately, there's a need everywhere. So that's become a lot less helpful as a criteria. Um, we To date, we really bootstrapped. like, And what I've realized is we were building the new bureaus in our nights and weekends. It takes time, as you know, to go and start an office in a place. You have to make sure it's really community rooted, that you're going to be able to make a long term commitment to a place, that you find the right partners. And so I was doing that with our team and our nights and weekends. And that's why We've now decided, okay, we need growth capital because we don't have the infrastructure to go as fast as the need is. We have a 60 city waiting list. Um, 
And you have a 60 city waiting list. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, again, I mean, who the heck would not want a chalk beat in their town? Anyone listening to this would be like, I would love to have a chalk beat <laughs> just to know what existed. Even if I didn't get together with my friends and read it every time. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be I really would love good. to have. So here's the thing. Like, I, so now I live in D.C. Like I told you, I moved from New York. Um, it's where I grew up. And I have to vote in a school board race. And there is, um, you know, that that those are the moments when I really want wish we had had shock dc because and and we'll get it but we don't have it yet because it's not because i need to read every single school board meeting report or every single um even you know thing that happens in every school i, I i'm i don't have time to do that i'm not going to do that but i need there to be like one or two really informed reporters well resourced with great, the best editors who have been doing that every single day so that when it comes time for me to make a, an important civic decision, like where am I going to live? Cause there, that's a, that's a political school's decision. If you have kids, um, what school am I going to choose for my kid when I have kids? Uh, where, how am I going to vote in a school board race? Um, at those moments, like we all really realize how much we would have liked there to be somebody closely following this and explaining it to us so that we can make the most informed decision. And what happens also in the absence of someone doing that, as you know, is like more corruption, more polarization, fewer minds changed. It's it's just not, it's not good for any of us, it, even whether we consume it or not. So let's go through some of the negative consequences of not having local journalism. And you just cited a few. So let, I just want everyone to think about this. Like some people listening to this right now are like, okay, my local paper is gone. No one's covering high school sports, Crimea River, who really cares? Uh, you know, I can get everything I need on Facebook, the internet, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, like the or like I have too much anymore. news to read. Like, what are you saying? Like, I I'm so overwhelmed with the news. I want less news, not more news. Is I think like a reasonable position that people take too. Yeah. So so that's what a lot of people are thinking. So here's what we're going to tell them, Elizabeth. <laughs> Why should they care about not having a local paper in 1,300 plus communities around the country right now? Yeah, 2000 newspapers closed since 2004. Um we should we should care because first of all our government, our local government's going to be more corrupt in the absence of local news. Like whether you're reading it or not, somebody being the watchdog um makes a big difference. Period. I can share an anecdote. You probably have dozens, uh but a colleague who's a city councilman told me that they ran city council meetings and a reporter showed up and then the newspaper ran out of money and the reporter no longer was there. And he said, all of a sudden things became very different <laughs> and not good, different, uh, sort of sloppy and unprofessional and uh, kind of corrupt different. Um, so that that's a government <laughs> Kind of corrupt is not really the bar we're going for for American government. Uh, so number one, worse local government uh number two more polarized partisanship in our country where we're um subscribing to this like national religious uh approach to to having our politics which is basically tearing us apart from our communities so there's studies that show 
the absence of local news increases polarization and decreases people who vote across party lines. And this makes intuitive sense to everyone, because if you don't get any local news, then you're just going to be tuning into Fox or MSNBC or wherever. And then uh, you just vote along party lines and that's it. Uh, And there's nothing really to um, uh, balance that or adulterate it in any way. Uh, So one, more corruption. Two, more polarization, which is not exactly what we need right now, America. We don't need any more polarization. This is not a good, good thing. Uh, Number three. Number three is um, the the more local news we have, the more civic engagement we have. And that's like, that's critical. I mean, we're, you know, we're entering a period, we're living through a period that's going to have generational consequences for, that could be look really dark, or I, I hope look like communities coming together, rolling up their sleeves and finding real solutions to the nightmare that we're living in that bring people together. And you know, more people vote, more people run for office, more people participate in school board um, activities when there's local news. And when you don't know about it, how the hell are you going to participate in it? Yes. Uh, People run for office less. They vote less. They don't know what's going on. I got to say, it's harder to care about something if you feel like other people aren't going to care or see it either. You know what I mean? Like, like if you see it in a town Mm. paper, then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, um, school board elections, ooh, mm-hmm. city council elections, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but but if it's just happening in the dark, then you're like, ah, it must not be important. Uh, we're we're pretty point. simple that way. That's so true. Like the tribal is the the tribe thing. Like we have at our school board debates that we we hold that wouldn't exist if we didn't hold them. That chalkbeat holds. Um, you know, like it's a cool event. It's like a place to be. It's a thing to do with your evening. That's really fun. And hundreds and hundreds of people come and and we get students to co-moderate them. I mean, you can make civic engagement fun. And I feel like we've never had a better opportunity to do that than we have right now in our country. Like every single person is asking these questions of themselves. I think like, what is my police department all about? You know, or what what I want people to reflect on right now is that the national climate is obviously very dark and bleak. Um, but then one counter argument, because Americans are programmed for counter arguments at this point, <laughs> would be like, oh, um, it's OK because communities will step up. Things will be better in like your town. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. so what if D.C. doesn't have its act together? Like, you know, that the city council will uh, pay attention to the most important things. Um, it's a very hard argument to make if you don't have any local news. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't have anyone actually covering what's going on in city government. There are numbers that show that the corruption argument actually has real monetary costs, where the cost of municipal bonds goes up if you don't have local news. Because then they're just like, yeah, whatever. Let's just like pay whatever bond rate. Um, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll take a, a little bit of back scratching. It's been like a boom time for researchers who care about local news and democracy because there's so many natural experiments unfolding over the last 15 years, given that some communities have managed to hold on to some semblance of people showing up to municipal meetings and school board meetings and city council meetings, and some just have zero, zero people. And so those kind of studies are like amazing and they wouldn't have been possible. America, the new land of natural experiments. <laughs> <laughs> that could be our new billing. So sad. So let's just see what happens if you have none of it. Um, so, so Chalkbeat, 
Um, so cool. Uh, helping fill the gap for local education uh, reporting. Uh, and then the American Journalism Project tries to take it another step, which you co-founded a little bit later. Uh, and that's championing nonprofit local journalism business models in communities around the country. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we, you know, I, I've, I've seen the way that this movie could play out if we're lucky. Like we, when we, when you say, okay, what's the, what's the math here? How much money do we need to spend that we're not currently spending to do? Yes, let's the, hear the math. The let's local do it. news we need. Um, it's, it's between one and three billion dollars a year. Um, and That's very, very low, Elizabeth. I don't believe exactly. your estimate. It's too low. No, you should believe my estimate. Um, oh my gosh, you should believe my estimate. It's 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 low enough to that we can do it. First of all, but it's it's grounded in um, good thinking. Like we we don't need to recreate restaurant coverage locally. We don't need to recreate classified ads. We don't need to recreate the weather report. But there's a core civic function that for decades um, there's been like a tiny little group of very well-meaning and public policy analysts who are saying, okay, what are the critical information needs that do exist and how can we size them? This is a fascinating convo. So I guess we're shifting uh, in this direction, which is great because this is where where my head's been anyway. uh, So if you look at the lost revenue among all newspapers, uh, it's in the $20 billion range. now, you certainly don't need $20 billion to replace all this because of what you just said. Like, you're not trying to recreate newspapers circa, you know, like 1988 or something. I mean, like, read that no. horoscope. Uh, uh, so, so, it, so it's clearly much lower than $20 billion, But $1 mm-hmm. to $3 billion seems so reasonable. Uh, you know, I feel like... And you're demonstrating how it can be done because you're serving mm-hmm. a number of communities, uh, it sounds like, very efficiently. Um, so the American Journalism Project has been trying to fill that one to three billion dollar gap. Exactly. So, okay, how do we fill it? Um, and as you say, it's a reasonable number. That's the size of many kind of public sectors that already exist. Like dance is is a nearly one billion dollar sector. Public broadcasting, a billion dollar sector. It's it's a small amount of money. Um, really in the scope of things and we have more than enough philanthropy it's it's a very very small price to pay for functioning democracy and uh continued civilization (laughs) yes um yes i think so too and and so like how do you pay it the fastest way possible is the question that has been keeping me up at night and when trump was elected i like so many people was really called to say, okay, I'm concerned about our democracy in a way that I wasn't concerned a year ago. And what am I going to do about that? And I thought about it and said, okay, I need to activate philanthropy in a bigger way than I've done so far. What does that look like? I mean, and it's pretty simple, I think. It looks like activating great leaders to build new institutions of the future and activating philanthropy to support them to do it as at least the first mover. Um, it doesn't have to be only philanthropy. And and yes, I know it's not the best situation that we don't just have like free independent money growing on trees that allows people to be totally pure because that doesn't exist. We ha- And philanthropy is not perfect, but it's the best we've got. And so we've got we've to assemble it. We've got to deploy it to really smart causes. And so that's where 
um, the idea for the American Journalism Project came from. We we are on a path to we're close to raising fifty million dollars, um, and then and we've been giving it away as our first fund um, to promising social entrepreneurs in the local news space and and you know organizations like Chalkbeat that ca- that are positioned to scale quickly. So the pandemic has made all of this much, much more pressing and worse. Uh, I don't even think we know the full scale damage to local journalism that's happening, though we all have an instinct that a lot of those local papers are dying even faster right now. If you were yeah. like a little ad supported daily or weekly, can you imagine that? I mean, no one's even going out. No one's going to pick up your free paper. That entire thing is done um, for the time being, maybe for a long time being, maybe forever. Uh, so... Yes. There are a number of journalists who've uh, gotten behind this Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which I am a huge fan of. I'm actually friends with Steve Waldman. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, oh, Report awesome. For America stuff. Um, yes, Report for America. All the For America people <laughs> are on the same text How many are together. there? Um, there are exactly eight of us. No, I'm kidding. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sure... I would um, like I'm to sure see a list. Steve's work is awesome, and I'm a huge supporter of it too. And I believe in in government having a role here, totally, hundred percent. Well, well, typically, so here are a few things I just want to sketch out for folks. Um, we've had this happy window of time when local journalism was being provided to us, subsidized by classified ads, and it was essentially market supported. Uh, it was a multi-decade stretch, great run. Um, that run is over. Uh, and so now you look around and say, okay, do we decide no more local journalism because uh, not enough money can be made, um, which would have disastrous effects for our local democracy, for civic engagement, for um, our polarization, for our ability to choose schools successfully, for our ability to have any confidence uh, in local government. Um, so that's a pretty easy answer in my mind. It's like, okay, well, you kind of want those things to keep on going, even if the market has decided to spirit the classified ad revenue to the internet. It's not, I don't, I don't subscribe to the argument that, uh, tech platforms that Google and Facebook, like are, um, like they did steal the advertising, like they just did, but it's also like the economics of attention of change to allow them to do that. And if, if it weren't them, it would have been someone else. So this is just my curiosity. Who are like the big shot funders of, uh, nonprofit journalism right now? Into the philanthropic leadership role has stepped far too few people. However, we're very grateful <laughs> for um, we're very grateful for the Knight Foundation, which is um, makes sense journalism. Journalism, right? The Knight Ritter newspaper chain. Um, the two John, J- John and James, I think, were the two brothers who kind of built that business. And there, um, that foundation has increased its. Um, investments in f- philanthropic local news solutions. There, um, they they were the anchor investor with a twenty million dollar historic for them commitment to the American Journalism Project. Um, the American Journalism Project is also supported by um, Emerson Collective, which is Lorene Powell Jobs' foundation. Also makes um, sense. Uh, Laura and John Arnold, um, a, a couple in Texas, have the Arnold Ventures Foundation. They're another anchor supporter of the American Journalism Project. And then um, at the uh, rounding out our anchor supporters of AJP are um, 
Democracy Fund, which is one of Piero Midiar's foundations that focuses on Some of the saving best. democracy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Omidyar, it's Emerson, uh, it's Knight. Those make sense. Um, I, I wish there were more. So here's Craig one of the things Newmark. that's happening. I should, I should shout out Craig Newmark is another strong supporter of local news, which is cool. So Craigslist founder. So here's, here's the tough thing that happened. I'm just going to throw this out there. If I was an internet gajillionaire um, and I liked uh, the idea of, of um, playing in journalism... It's a lot easier and sexier for me to buy Time Magazine, uh, buy buy the Washington Post, <laughs> buy like what a, existing national what publications. A Someone because, should do that uh, because you have national reach, and it's yeah. uh, you know it it seems more influential and more current and more relevant. Yeah. Um, so I I was joking that. Uh, Media properties are like sports teams now for people that don't like sports. <laughs> you, know I mean? you, know, you know what I mean? It's like I'm I'm a billionaire, but I don't really feel like buying that uh, sports team I know nothing about. So uh, maybe I'll buy a major publication that used to be a very very big deal. So the the monies are not going to flow to local journalism. Um, but the local journalism sustainability act had so many smart things in it. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, if you're a member of Congress, how can you be against trying to make local journalism function in your community? Uh, because theoretically, they'd be helping cover you, <laughs> like cover cover the true. Uh, issues you're, you're working on that you care about. Um, yes. So the, for the life of me, I don't understand why you only have 50 or 60 members of Congress. It's bipartisan, too, because uh, a lot of yes. the places that have lost their papers the fastest are more rural red states, uh, you know, like like they they see this problem just as clearly. It's an equal um, opportunity. So I'd love problem. to. Yeah. yeah. So so this should be universal. Totally. And one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation with you is try and push this because uh, I want people to pass the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. So so for the Me folks too. that are 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 wondering how the heck can you reverse this tide, like what is in the Local Journalism Sustainability Act that would help fill this one to $3 billion gap? Um, so uh, I, Steve is really clever. He was uh, worked at the, the FCC and he did this like important report documenting what was coming, everything that was coming. And actually he's the one who really helps us get to the one to $3 billion number because he's identified the critical information areas, costed out a way to a model of thinking about what are the key things that are missing. And he has also identified a lot of safe ways. Um, this is more recently now, safe ways to direct money to, to news without fear that the government is going to control the coverage. Yeah, which I have to say, that concern is so overblown because we all watch NPR. Uh, you know, it's like, do you really think that there's some government bureaucrat being like, you know, like, stop this Andrew Yang guy in his tracks? <laughs> like, <laughs> NPR. Um, you know, it's like, like the fact that people are so concerned that if government touches it, then all of a sudden we'll wind up in Big Brother's own. Um, just, just strikes me as... Um, paranoid frankly it's like like you you have models in other countries you're the bbc that's freaking publicly funded uh, you know it's been going on for decades and they yeah. managed to irritate politicians of every stripe yeah. uh so there there's no reason to think that especially if we're remote 
Like yeah. if, if the federal government sends money to Tucson, you're telling me that some bureaucrat's going to be like, hey, folks in Tucson, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we've got a school board candidate we have our eye on. Like, you know, like that, that that's not, um, it's not, anyway. So I think, that, that, I think that there, the reason people are paranoid is that there is like, there are propaganda efforts afloat that are working, that are privately initiated. And we do have, um, you know, a president. Well, that's why we need to do this because you're exactly. seeing private propaganda fill the gap, yes. uh, you know. So, so having a nonprofit or public funding model, um, to me, makes sense. And a lot of the stuff in, um, in. So I'm looking over here for some references because I want to get some of the facts right. Um, so the Local Journalism Sustainability Act has so many fun measures in it um, that I thought were genius. Like you said, very very clever. So number one, everyone gets a $250 refundable tax credit to pay for a subscription to a local news source. So essentially you, you sign up for local news, it's free for you. Uh, number two, any small business gets a $5,000 credit to buy local advertising. How fun is that? <laughs> you know? That's one of Steve's like, most genius ideas too, is that there's already a lot of government money that supports advertising. And so we can take, we can actually assemble a lot of money just by directing like public health messaging to the places that actually, by the way, happen to be the most trusted sources, local news. Because that's another thing. Like yes. nobody trusts the media except their local media. Except local media. We all instinctively trust local media more. Um, so to and your point, And we should. Three, it's more trustworthy. <laughs> it is more trustworthy. It tends to be more objective and unifying, and that's why it's yeah. uh, it's depolarizing. Yeah. Number three, federal advertising budgets spent on local media organizations uh, and tax credits to maintain journalists and staffers. Number four, three to one uh, matching donation for any journalism nonprofit. So if you gave to your local uh, nonprofit paper or whatnot, you'd get uh, matching funds. Number five, define public service journalism as a tax deductible activity. The one I loved the most, number six, was an opportunity to reseed papers from private equity funds um, that have gotten gobbled up where you could try and replant it in the community. So here's I, what happened. Yes. You, you have um, thousands of family-owned papers in cities around the country that got consolidated into a conglomerate at some point. Let's call it Gannett or, uh, or, or one of these. Um, and then Gannett Alden fell on hard times yeah. and was then bought by a, a private equity fund or a hedge fund. It's a private equity fund, typically. Um, and the private equity fund then owns a bunch of papers and then rings them for cash. They look around and say, ooh, like I have economies of scale. Um, and then if someone raised their hand is like, I'd like to report on my local school board and be like, well, that has zero economies of scale. So no, you're out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but but now they're looking around for an exit. They're looking around saying, what the heck do I do with my investment? Because this has not worked out. Even my ringing for cash ruthlessness has not worked out. Yes. Uh, and so if you give them an easy way out and say, why not just give that paper back to the community with this 501c3, there are some local stakeholders, and we'll cash you out, not so you make out like a bandit, but that that you actually make it out alive. Yes. <laughs> um, that would be such an enormous win. I thought this was the most genius idea in the whole thing. Oh, well, thank you. I wrote it. No, I didn't. Um, but I, I agree. I really agree. I think you're totally right. The, um, those are the group of us that were advising Steve and working with him on this are very concerned about what the risk is also for the exit that these 
um, private equity firms are going to pursue that own a significant number of the highly trusted brands in our country. And we know that there's a big risk of a bad outcome because we know, as you alluded to, that there are bad actors who are uh, on, on both, I mean, bad actors, pr- propagandists, advocacy um, efforts that are starting new local news brands and allowing them to to spew partisan nonsense um, instead of fact-checked stories that actually bring people together. And so those actors, you know, exist out there. There is a fear that is, I don't think, unwarranted that the when the exit happens, it, the, the papers go into the wrong hands. And so I thought Steve's idea here, the replanting idea is really a genius idea too, um, because it says, let's incentivize a different outcome. With, well, with I'm going to use an example from the presidential the trail that maybe fo- folks um, uh, will take to. Uh, the main paper that all the presidential candidates wanted to um, get coverage in was the Des Moines Register uh, because it's the biggest circulation in Iowa. And obviously, Iowa was the first state uh, and the rest of it. So yeah. we just hang out with them all the time Yeah. Um, or try to. Yeah. Um, and so if they wrote a good story about you, you were very, very pleased and uh, like your staff was very happy. Uh, Des Moines Register was bought by one of these uh, private equity firms uh, and like tacked on to its, you know, several hundred newspaper collection (laughs) 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 while I was running. And so a journalist I was talking to was there was like, well, we're not sure what's going to happen now. We just got new ownership. And like, it wasn't like a hip hip hooray. We got new ownership. It was like, uh oh, like, you know, I might lose my job kind of situation. Um, So so these are the folks that we've been relying upon. Yeah. for generations to help vet uh, national candidates who yeah. who come through. Uh, and so if you start doing a number on even massive pillars of local journalism, like the Des Moines Register, like where, where do you, where does it end? It, it ends in tears uh, really, or it ends in an information wasteland. And like you said, propagandists will fill that. And I'm really worried right now. And I actually started a third um, pro- organization um, the last month because, uh, okay, think back to um, 2000, the last time we had a contested presidential election, which it looks possible that we're going to have again. Um, and it came down to Florida. Um, the The apparatus at that time of the, of the newspapers in Florida was so strong and robust. Like, um, and the Miami Herald, I think, had about 350 person newsroom at the time. And they just went to town making sure that, um, you know, people understood what a hanging Chad was and they were in the room watching the Chads hang or whatever was actually going on. And and that's that's like really um, you can't underestimate the difference between what the the rest of us were who were just kind of sitting at home watching CNN here or or whatever we're watching now, um, Twitch here uh, when we're having it explained to us what, what is going on, if the people who are in the national stage have that behind them, have like all that 350 person newsroom that like understands the, the arcane details of local politics and local election administration versus today, the Miami Herald newsroom is under a hundred people. It's probably about 50 people. I mean, that's, that's just like, unreal to think about what's going to happen. And and it's like we are in a much more insecure and unstable um, situation in terms of 
challenges to the integrity of the election because one of the two candidates for for president has already decided he doesn't trust the outcome. Plus, a pandemic has made a lot of Americans wonder if they can trust the outcome. Adding on to that, like the a history of voter suppression and that that has been kind of opened up a little bit with by certain court moves and the and so all of that um is really scary situation like even right now because the people that are going to be explaining all of this to us have even less firsthand independent accounts to rely on which is why like you said they'll all be parachuting and then uh you know you get there and like who's there uh, and we, what's the record and we already saw that happen in the primaries people the the you know you you it, it I love journalists. I am a journalist and I want to say you can always believe journalists, but you actually can't always believe journalists because sometimes they do parachute and we do do that and we don't know what we're talking about. And it's dangerous to say, to scare people about things that you don't actually need to be scared about, but it's also um, dangerous to to uh, relieve, make people feel relief when they shouldn't. I mean, it's just a bad, bad situation. So, um, so the, I was like I, I, up, yeah. I think journalists have been getting a bad rap, um, but I think a lot of the bad rap they've been getting does not apply to local journalists, your earlier point. It's like we, we just sort of trust local journalists in a different way than we do um, some of the national media figures. And the national media figures, a lot of the economic incentives are around feeding into the polarization narratives, unfortunately, and those incentives do not tend to exist locally. Like if you're a small town paper, the last thing you're going to do is being like, we're the small town paper that only half of you are going to like. It's not really a recipe for success. I mean, like, obviously there's exceptions to every rule, but the truth is that, yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's so so I started a project, Andrew, called Vote Beat, where we are deploying local reporters because in the pandemic, we've seen just hundreds and hundreds of reporters furloughed from their jobs who have um, who are local reporters who have this deep trusted relationships in their communities. They have a lot of local knowledge, but they're not working. And then there's um, this craziness that we have to cover. So yeah, you're matching the resources to the need. Nicely done. Thank you. Uh, and, and, and it's one reason why we have to act fast, Elizabeth, because these reporters expertise will not be there forever. Uh, you right. know, the, ability to replant these papers will not last forever. Yes. Um, yes. We, we have a window of time that we have to run through, um, a window of opportunity. Uh, and I, I applaud you for leading on this issue, uh, certainly before I'd figured it out. Um, we need to try and get more resources to the American Journalism Project. We need to pass the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. If we do that, then we'd have a real chance um, at having people like you covering important issues in communities for decades and generations instead of seeing it wither away. Um, thank you so much for being a champion of this issue. I, I, it's, it's so true. It's, it's an easy, easy thing for all of us to do right now is to support local news and supporting Chalkbeat, supporting the American Journalism Project and supporting the local journalism sustainability act are exactly the asks that, that I, the past that I think we are easily all that's all we have to do. I mean, it's not so hard. There's there's a straight path to to fast, quick um, civic change like it doesn't. I don't think you can do any of the things that we're all scared about and upset about if you don't have this. 
I agree. And I met so many folks who were third generation newspaper owners in small town Iowa uh, or places where there was something very family oriented and community oriented about a lot of these publications. Uh, but that's not the case anymore. You know, in a lot of cases, the, the, the family has not been able to sustain it. And so it's gotten combined uh, or bought. Um, you know, that, that's true for a lot of these papers. Uh, and maybe we can get something new that isn't quite the family ownership of the past, but it could be something closer to community ownership, um, which could give rise to a different form of trust. Yeah, I think, and and we don't want to. I don't want to paint the past in too rosy a picture. Like at Chalkbeat, when we are out there working with communities to tell the story of public education in Newark or Detroit or um, Memphis, we often hear that um, it's you know the way we're doing this, the people we're reaching out to are telling us, you know, I as a, as a black woman who's been involved in the public education system my entire life for like four generations of of my family, never once did the local newspaper ask me what I thought or think of me as their customer. And so, the, you know, like, like every, maybe we can even do it better. I agree with you. <laughs> we it's can not do just it a like lot better get going back to the nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, and you're making it happen. Elizabeth, thank you for your incredible work. Oh uh, hopefully God, we're going to pass this law and give the American Journalism Project the one to three billion well, income combination of the law. You don't even need the one to three billion. If we pass the law, maybe you only need one billion. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. 